Let's take your Bibles and let's open up to the book of 1 John. I'd like to draw your attention to the second chapter. The book of 1 John. Toward the back of the Bible, the very end is Revelation, then Jude, keep going forward, backwards, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John. Turn with me to the second chapter. There in the second chapter of 1 John, in verse 3, the beloved disciple writes this, and by this we know that we have come to know him. In verse 5, it says, by this we may know that we are in him. John wants us to know something here, and he wants us to know that we can know Jesus. And that has been a question that we've had for several weeks now, is how can we really know that we know Jesus? Do you really, really know? Not just because you've kind of grown up in the church or your parents were Christian or you're just kind of in a, we're in a Christian culture, but do you really know that you know Jesus? John has given us three tests of knowing, the three tests of assurance in this chapter. Now these are not tests to be proofs or performance. Like if you do these good enough, then you will prove yourself. That's religion. These are tests for us to have sober reflection of how we're walking with the Lord. The first couple verses in verses 3 through 6 were the moral test. How do we live? And so if we know Jesus, we will obey Jesus. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, Jesus told his disciples, and this beloved disciple tells us. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. How would we ever refuse him? So if we do not obey the King of kings, the Lord of lords, we don't know him as that. We obey Jesus if we know Jesus. That's the moral test. It would not be perfect, but there will be a heart of desiring to submit our, our lives to his, his will. Verses 7 through 11 were the social test, how we love. Look at verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. If we know Jesus, we then know how much God has loved us. And then we can then love because he first loved us. So if we have no love for other people, especially brother or sister in the household of faith, we don't know Jesus. So if our love is waxing, if our love is faint for others, we need to come again to realize the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. We love others if we know Jesus. Verses 18 through 27, the text for, our today, for today is the doctrinal test. What we believe. This is the subject of this next passage. What do you truly believe about the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's read this. Beginning in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. 
And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the the Son has the Father, but whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If you heard from the beginning, if you've what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too shall abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he has made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need of anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is God's word for our reflection this day. In the preceding verse, verse 17, if you look briefly there, it says, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is now the last hour. The world is passing away because this is now the last hour. Well, Derek, you've told us that this letter was probably written in the 90s AD. That's some 1900 years ago, over 1900 years ago. That's a long hour. Imagine receiving this letter in the 90s and being told it's the last hour. What would your expectation be? Well, just a couple decades prior, our, our dear pastor here saw Jesus go to heaven, and so now we're waiting for him to come back. And every generation since has been waiting for Jesus to come back. This has been a very long hour. But the older that I get, this is how time feels to me. The years race on, but sometimes the days and the hours are idle. Do you remember what last March and April felt like? March of 2020, really more so April of 2020, felt like a year as we were in quarantine. That singular month felt like a year because our lives finally slowed down. It felt slowed down so much that we felt time more fully. Next Sunday, remember this, or you're, your smartphones will be smarter than you in this. We spring forward in an hour. It is curious what we do with time. So next Sunday, we'll get to have longer days all the way into June. God is never hurried. God is never late. 
God is never anxious about time. God is the creator of time and God is sovereign in time. Peter tells us in his second letter, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. According to that math, these 19 plus 100 years have been just like two days to God. He's outside of time, but he's also sovereign in it, active in it. John says this is the last hour. This is not a 60-minute interval. And the New Testament also uses other phrases to describe this time. Hebrews 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he spoke to us by his son. These last days. Imagine getting the letter from the, the writer of Hebrews. We're in the last days. Peter wrote this, which we were in this letter in the spring. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, that's Christ, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So we have these expressions here of last hour, last days, and last times. All synonymous. What is this time? This last hour, these last days, these last times is the time between Christ's first advent and his second advent. His first coming and his second coming. He came in frailty, taking on our flesh. He's now ascended into heaven, ruling over all, but coming back again in glory. This entire time, for as long as it's going to be, is the last hour, the last days, the last times. Every day, we are closer to Jesus' second coming. By the end of this service, in this hour, you will be one hour closer to your death unless the return of Jesus, if the return of Jesus tarries. The question that every generation has asked are, are we in the last, last days? Because we read Mark 13 and Matthew 24 and read Revelation, and we're like, these have got to be the last, last days. And so there should, every generation should have an expectation or an urgency for our blessed hope, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. But even as we look forward to that and long for that, how are we living with the time given to us? Are we loving Jesus? Are we longing to see him? Or as we talked about last week, are we loving the world and really just afraid for this to end? Moses gives us in his one psalm, Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. From yesterday to today, you have one less day in your life. We'll have less hours in your life by the end of this service, end of this day. There's a terminus point there. You will have a death date, not just a birthday. You'll have a death date unless the Lord returns in our lifetimes. Teach us to number our days 
that we may get a heart of wisdom. The temptation of youth is you have all the time in the world. The older that we get, we realize time is racing on. and We don't have as much as we thought. But this is the promise he's given us, eternal life. In this last hour, how does John address them? Children. 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 He calls them all children. Two weeks ago, Pastor Christian was on verses 12 through 14, talking about the children, young men, young women, and the fathers and the mothers in the faith of this congregation. There's not only a biological development, but there's a spiritual maturity that makes for a healthy church. It's good to have people who are just being born into the faith in a church. And then those who are discipling up and wrestling with God's word, fighting the evil one, and then those who just known God. It can be fathers and mothers. And so he's spoken to these three different groups, but now he speaks to the entire church and says, children. He uses a Greek word, paideon. But this is used twice, but several other times. Several other times he uses another word, technion, little children. You've already heard it, and you will hear it again as we continue in this letter. Chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I mean, don't picture me. Just picture John, this beloved disciple, this elderly apostle, speaking to that church and then have it speak to you. And now, little children, abide in him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In the very last verse of this letter, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why does John call this entire church children, even little children? Because he's old and he can do that. He's elderly. He's the last living apostle. All of his friends, those who'd walked with Jesus, have been martyred, including his brother James. He's into old age now. And you get to be old. You can call everybody children. But he's also a spiritual father to them. It's, the, it's a blessing to be a beloved child. To know the unconditional love, the watchful care, the provision, protection of a parent, especially a father. God is our heavenly father who is perfect in all ways, but is now a blessing both in our biological families and in the church family to have fathers and mothers. It is a blessing to have someone come up to you and say, hey, child, what are you doing? Son, you're loved. Daughter, Follow him. These are blessings to have those in our lives, spiritual fathers and mothers in the faith. Community has been a buzzword in the church for years, especially these past couple years. What do you want to be? We want to be a community church. We want to be all about community. We want to live in community. And community is fine, but I think your heartache is for family. 
Community is sometimes we'll just gather together with those in our same life stage and just have friendship. But what we really need, and is actually even the ache of our heart, is family. It has been a blessing to see some of our newer newcomers to City Light have been like multi-generational. It's been like families visiting. It's a blessing to worship with family. And our desire at City Light, by the Lord's grace, is for us to be a church family together. With spiritual fathers and mothers, young adults growing up in the faith, children being born into the faith, biological generations, but also spiritual stages within our congregation, so that we're all growing up into him who is the head. You're like, well, Derek, I'm like 50 years old, and I'm just coming to faith. I'm just now getting this. I'm frustrated that I didn't get that these first five decades of my life, but I'm just now coming to faith. Welcome to the family. Be born into the family. Enjoy being a kid. Be young at heart. We, there's never no shame that even if our biological and spiritual ages don't necessarily match up, just wherever we are, let's keep growing together. What is sad, though, is just to be advanced in our biological age, but stalled in our spiritual growth. And then what's also amazing is to see little kids and youth who know God and who are like old souls who pray to God like they've known him for like years beyond that they've had. Here's what one writer says. Isn't there a subtle pressure in both the church and society to remain a dependent child? Hasn't the church in the past stressed dependence in a fashion that made it hard to claim spiritual fatherhood? And hasn't our consumer society encouraged us to indulge in childish self-gratification? Who has truly challenged us to liberate ourselves from immature dependencies and to accept the burden of responsible adults? I think we're in a day where we need to grow up. Um, that's actually written by a Catholic mystic. If you want to, you're going to look it up, you're like, oh, hold on, Derek, you're, you're quoting a Catholic? I'll get after the Pope in a second. You just hold on. We're coming to the Antichrist, right? Do you realize the love of God the Father for you? And are you growing up in spiritual maturity so you can be a father and mother to others? It's the last hour. We've got to keep growing. As you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. This is a term that you've probably heard a lot if you've been in church, the Antichrist. It only occurs in John's letters. It only occurs five times. Four times in this letter and one time in his second letter. But here in this one verse, here we get two occurrences. Antichrist and Antichrist. When we hear this, we think, the Antichrist, capital A. Who is the Antichrist? This powerful, in-time, evil person who embodies sin and evil, who will deceive, and deceive many people of this world and oppress God's people. As we zoom out across the Bible, we see Daniel's visions of a little horn 
And it was partially fulfilled within Tychus Epiphanes. We go forward to the man of lawlessness in the Thessalonian letters that Paul wrote. We go to Revelation 13 to the beast. Who is this figure, this end-time evil figure who will deceive people and oppress God's people? Every generation has speculated on who this could be. And we should. We should be watchful. In the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, Martin Luther was certain that the Pope was Antichrist. He just says, I, he's discovering the grace of the gospel and he had seen an oppressive system that he came to see the, the truth of God's word, a priesthood of all believers. There's no more sacred, secular divide, the doctrines of grace. And he just like, to not be preaching that or proclaiming that, that's antichrist. He was certain. Just understand him in his historical context. He was certain that the Pope was the antichrist. Well, this week, Pope Francis held an interfaith prayer meeting at the ancient Mesopotamian site of Ur, locking arms with those of different faiths to pray a prayer as the sons of Abraham. Can I tell you, that's Antichrist. Don't, don't be, we dialogue, love, conversation, debate all day long, but we're not locking arms in prayer as the sons of Abraham. Because my question, Pope Francis, is what about the seed of Abraham? The Lord Jesus Christ. What did John just say? If you deny the son, you don't have the father. So don't say that we're all of the Father because we're all of Abraham. Unity is only in Christ Jesus. So we can talk, debate, dialogue, all this stuff, but prayer meetings at the site nearby where the Tower of Babel was? And you're going to make me Martin Luther now. <laughs> what does the word Antichrist mean? It can have two different connotations. Anti could mean the opposite of. This would be a rival of Christ. If Christ is Lord of all, this is going to be the opposite of that in an evil way. A tyrannical dictator. Or it can mean, instead of the opposite of, it can mean instead of. And there's a slight nuance there. Hear that. It could be a substitute for Christ. A charismatic deceiver. So sometimes we're always looking for the tyrannical overlords, the tyrannical dictators. We also got to be watchful for the charismatic deceivers. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, Jesus says in Matthew 24. Deception. There are the Mao's, there are the Stalins, the Lenins, the Hitlers of world history who dominate by tyrannical power, but there are also those who have also deceived with counterfeit salvation. This is more of his warning in this letter. Warning of counterfeit Christ. A singular Antichrist is coming at the end of this age, in the last, last days, 
But many Christ, antichrists have already come in these days. Chapter 4, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. There are Antichrist, lowercase a, now in the world, now in the church. Are you frightened? You're not frightened enough. Because I know what hunts us. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But, little children, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Who are the Antichrist? Who are the false teachers, the false prophets of John's day? If you've got your study Bible or you consult a commentary, you're going to read that it's mostly the Gnostics or even the Docetists. The Gnostics had a philosophy that they had kind of adapted the Greek philosophy of the day, the Hellenistic philosophy of the day of dualism, that the spirit world is, is is all good, and the material physical world is evil, bad. And that we are just imprisoned spirits trying to free ourselves from the material world. And then comes this message of this weird movement saying that, no, God, who is spirit, has come into this world and taken on flesh and dwelt among us. Not only lived among us in flesh, eating, drinking, could feel tiredness, but himself died in the flesh. Died in the flesh, dead and buried, and then was risen in the flesh with scars. Could be touched, seen. But the Gnostics, that did not work with the philosophy of the day, so they had to make a runaround and say that Jesus only appeared to look like he was in the flesh, but he wasn't really in the flesh. So this was a secret esoteric knowledge that they had that many people didn't have, but this Gnostic knowledge that Jesus just, the dose, the, he just appeared to have come in the flesh. They were really just echoing out Greek philosophy for quote-unquote Christian belief. And John calls them Antichrist. The cultural context of the day often gives rise to the false teachings of the day. Let me say that again. The cultural context of the day often gives rise to the false teaching of the church in that day because Satan likes to work to copy and counterfeit. Man, he's just so not original. Satan, you don't have a real original idea. All he can do is copy what God does and distort it. Who have been the false teachers in the American church? And when I say this, false teachers, sometimes there's just movements that have gone astray, but there's been also those who have been antichrist in it. I'm not going to name names, but can I just go back a couple decades? Do you know what the economic, you know what the cultural context was in the 80s and 90s? I mean, I was a kid growing up, 80s and 90s. I'm like, 
come out the other side of the Cold World with Russia, boom, like economy was booming in the 90s, dot com, like tech was booming. It was an economic boom. That was the cultural context of the day. And America still felt Christian, whatever that means. And the rise of the televangelist. So if the, the day was like economic boom, here comes somebody with a message. talking. Here's how you can really get it. You just get in the, it became the prosperity gospel, this word of faith movement, name it, claim it. Why? Because there's a motivator that was an idol of success. Get yours. Your health, your wealth, your church growth. It was a, it sounded appealing because it spoke to faith. There's verses that we, we shy away from where God says, Jesus says, ask whatever you will in my name and I'll give it to you. And you're like, I don't even want to do with those verses. They know what to do with those verses. They're going to ask you to give to their ministry. They're going to misapply this in a self-centered and not kingdom mindset. Let's move past the 90s into the 2000s. Kind of what's happening in our culture at that time. Recession, 2008. The boom, the internet. I went to college before the internet, guys. I took tests and studied for tests before Google. I wasn't cheating on my homework with Google, friends. Young people. Personal technologies. Not only was this the computer you went to school to work on, you could now carry it with you. It's now in your pocket as the first iPhone comes out at the end of the 2000s. Man, the cultural context of the day was it started to feel more post-Christian. So we're more post-Christian, but we get all these cool technologies to play with. And what arose in the church? Do you remember? The hipster pastor. I mean, I wore flannel too. I preached in flannels a lot early on. The desire for relevance in a post-Christian world. And so we're to always contend for the faith that was once delivered for us. But we do it by contextualizing. Like when Paul went to Athens, he was trying to use kind of where are they at and speak their language. Oh, you see that God over there? It's an unknown God. I know who that is. And then he would preach the gospel. But he wasn't fascinated with the statue. It was a means to get to the message. I think what happened in the 2000s is we got so fascinated with the means that the message got off center. This is how we're going to do church. And it's all going to be gospel-centered everything. And that's fine. And the Lord was gracious to lead and to speak and to correct because we're correcting from the previous generation. But our fascination shouldn't be in how we're doing church, but in what message we're proclaiming. What's our context today? The 2010s into the 2020s. We're really in the midst of a cultural revolution. Everything is changing so quickly. The 2010s, everything got redefined. Everything is now changed and changing, and you can be whatever you want to be and declare yourself to be. And in that is identity politics around sexuality, race, gender, 
And so the command is just love your neighbor. And if we've been walled in too far and just kind of isolated ourselves and just not loving our neighbor, there's now going to a reaction like, no, we got to get beyond ourselves and take this great glorious message beyond these walls, beyond ourselves, to other people who are lost and dying in this world. That's the good heart. That's the gospel. That's the scripture command. But are we going to make it, are we going to create a utopia? Do we have it in ourselves to make everything equal for everybody? And so we can take good motivations, but we can overrealize those that will take us into false teachings, a misappropriated view of our identity, even into justice. This is the day of justice, social justice, the social justice warriors. Acts 17 says this, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live over the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. We are one race. We have defined nations by God's design. But we will try to unite ourselves in a new Tower of Babel against the Lord. Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. That's not identity politics. Your identity there is in Christ. It doesn't matter who you are, what background, so forth. Our identity is in Christ, not how we create a new caste system in identity politics. False teachers will appear to, appear to us, appeal to us for different reasons. Some of us will be drawn more to culty type leaders because we want to belong to something exclusive. That, the church that has the truth. We want to be there because no one else has got it, but there is where it's at. And then others of us will be more drawn to charismatic leaders because we want to be where everybody else is, a popular belonging. But beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, Jesus teaches us. For those with spiritual discernment, this is what Jesus is saying. A servant of the enemy often looks very fair, but will feel foul. If you really just let yourself think about it, pray through it. My prayer for you is that I would feel fair to you, even if I look foul to you. We've got to have discernment on how we hear God's word teach and preached, even in the church. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Please, I know that we're all tempted. The very first church that Stacey and I went to when we got married ended up just being culty. Just, and it was the Lord's grace just to get us out, to lead us out, to come back to the fellowship of the saints, the history of the church the truth of the gospel. We all have our own sensibilities on how the enemy will try to deceive us. What is it for you? Will it be salvation, or your identity, your acceptance, your purpose, your mission? If these are not defined in Christ, we will be tempted to follow a false prophet, a counterfeit Christ, even an antichrist. How is Satan most successful against the church? 
persecuting the church, coming and leading people away and resting and beheading, torturing. Man, that's only going to resolve the church. And that's when the church like, gets really real. Purified, they resolve themselves, staying firm in the faith, having real prayer meetings, and they just want to stand. Peter's, Peter's arrested. Let's have a prayer meeting. They just resting. And then Peter comes knocking on the door, like, hey, an angel let me out. Oh, God answered a prayer? What? That's when, when you persecute, the church is going to multiply. How do you really want to attack the church? Subtle deception within it. Antichrists are here, and the Antichrist is coming. Are we able to recognize and resist such counterfeits? They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they'd have been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Many false teachers do not continue in the church, but go out to start their own true church or their new movement. All right, I will name a few names. Joseph Smith, in 1830, left the church and organized the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints after getting extra revelation and leading many people out to start a whole new church. 1978, some of you may remember this, Jim Jones left the evangelical church and called hundreds to the People's Temple, which ended in a mass suicide, homicide, in the late 70s. That was an antichrist. That's, that's an antichrist spirit there. Do I dare get a little closer to our time? How about the 2010s? Rob Bell left the pastorate of a megachurch to become a spiritual guru, an author and podcaster. Someone I listened to, he planted his church by preaching through the book of Leviticus. I'm a seminary student. Like, you did what? You preached through Leviticus and planted a church? And it became a megachurch in Michigan? But he has now left the church. Um, even in a recent documentary, The Heretic, he's got all the answers on what's wrong with us. That's fine. He just never talks about Christ and the cross much anymore. The going out of false teachers is often very hurtful, very confusing, but it's good and necessary for the church. It purifies the church. It contrasts truth and error. If you also see in this verse, there's like two subtle references to other two great doctrines. Like if they were to, they've gone out from us. If they were with us, they'd have stayed with us. There is a doctrine there that um, even John Stott refers to as the perseverance of the saints. It's not the primary verse to, to, to do this from, but it's there. Those who are saved persevere in the end. Hear that word. That preposition is important. Those who are saved persevere in the end. How have you observed these three different trajectories in the lives of fellow Christians or those you were with church with? Someone who professes faith and continues in the faith, ups and downs, but continues in the faith all the way to the end. That, that's one trajectory. We've also seen people who start in the faith, excited, and then they, they tail off, they backslide, they, they slide away for a season and we're praying hard they come back. And there's some who fall away, but they never return. So there's those who profess faith and will profess it all the way to the end. Those who profess faith, but then are 
fallen away, backslid, and it just it should liven up a prayer meeting. Your private prayers for these loved ones, you should just pray that the Lord bring them back. That there are some who profess faith, and then they so fall away. We've seen that even in these past months and years. People renouncing, pa- pastors renouncing their faith. On Instagram, with the perfect lighting, here's, I'm going to renounce the evil evangelical church. Profession of Christ does not necessarily mean possession of Christ. We do not know how a person's life will continue on, and so we should continue in prayer for all. Even those who just had the audacity to say, no more Jesus for me. Oh, Jesus, have mercy. Profession of faith does not necessarily mean that we possess it. And the church has many who profess faith, but do we possess it? And so that really brings to this other doctrine of the doctrine between the visible and the invisible church. And we pray that God purifies the church for gospel witness in each day, but we will never have a pure church. Please, we never will have this pure church. Pure. If your vision of a pure, perfect church is what you desire, and you've been coming to City Life for like two weeks, come another week or two, and we'll, we'll keep letting the veneer wear off. Jesus told a parable about the wheat and the weeds in Matthew 13. And those who are serious about the church, those who are serious about doctrine, Jesus, where do you mean go? I'm ready to pull up the weeds. He's like, whoa, no, no, no. We're not pulling up weeds. You pull up the weeds, you may like up, uproot some wheat. We're, we're going to sort this out at the end, is what Jesus says in this parable. It's not ours to like be able to sort it all out and put it in nice piles for Jesus when he returns. This is what it is. We're a mess. We're wheat and weeds all grown together. And when he comes back with his holy angels, that judgment will be perfect in the sorting out. Some Christians, this one person writes, this pastor, some Christians are so much like non-Christians, and some non-Christians are so much like Christians, it's really impossible to tell the difference between them in this life. At the harvest, that's where it's going to get separated out. There are times for discipline. There are times for excommunication in individual cases. But it is such a mercy when false teachers go out from us. Over and against the Antichrist who leave Christ's church are these true children. And what characterizes them? Look at these verses quickly. They're anointed by the Holy One, and they have the knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ. You have been anointed by the Holy One. That stood for us in the English. But when we're even in the Greek, we're like, whoa, there's a bigger contrast here. Because Christ in the Greek is Christos. Antichrist is Antichristos. But anointed is chrisma. It's the same verb. So when we say Christ, we're saying the anointed one. So as John is saying, here's the Antichrist, the Antichristos, you are of Christos. You have faith in him and you have chrisma. You have anointing. 
So in the Greek, there's a, a different contrast that we see in the, the words of between Antichrist and those who are in faith in Christ. Antichrist do not have the anointing of God. But you Christians, you little Christ, not because you're going to save the world, but because you identify with him, you're his. You're anointed by God. And what is this anointing? What is this anointing that we have here in this New Testament hour, these last times? The very Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth. You've been anointed by the Holy One. You've been given the Holy Spirit. And you all have knowledge. Now it's a fine translation. I will take umbrage with the King James on this verse. I love, I want to speak more. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and you know all things. I just think the Holy, uh, King James put the all in the wrong place. We don't know all things, but we all have knowledge. We don't know all things. God does. But we do have knowledge that's revealed to us. And all of his disciples are led into this. Meditate on these blessings, friends. We are anointed by God. Inwardly changed and empowered by an indwelling Holy Spirit. The third person of the triune God is here, friends. We want to see Jesus. Come back, Jesus. But we have God with us now, His Holy Spirit. And we know the truth of God, the revelation of His beloved Son. Who is the liar? The Antichrist of John's days were the Gnostics who denied the humanity of Jesus. But there are also those of other days who deny the divinity of Jesus. And it usually swings from generation to generation. You either deny the humanity of Jesus or you deny the divinity of Jesus. Which one is... Harder for you to believe that God fully divine would take on flesh? Or is it hard for you to believe that actually he's actually in the flesh and lived a life just like us? Who do you say Jesus is? The scriptures say this. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit and he's born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus is God in the flesh, fully God and fully man. Jesus lived a sinless life among us, proclaiming the kingdom of God. Jesus was betrayed by a disciple, arrested by religious leaders, and tortured by the Roman Empire. Jesus, fully God, fully man, was crucified on a cross, died a sinner's death in judgment for our sins. He was forsaken by God the Father. He was dead and buried. Just as he said, he rose again on the third day, Victorious over sin, death, and evil. This is the good news. It's just a simple historical account, marvelous mystery of God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you believe this? The Antichrist doesn't. John Calvin writes this, We now see that Christ is denied whenever the things that belong to him are taken from him. And as Christ is the end of the law and the gospel and has within himself all the treasures of wisdom and understanding, so also is he the mark at which all heretics aim and direct their arrows. Therefore, the apostle has good reason to make those who fight against Christ the leading liars since the full truth is exhibited 
to us in him. Antichrist will have worldly ambition, but Antichrist will have demonic influence to lead astray Christians. But how do we resist? Verse 24 and 25, with God's word abiding in us. Let that which you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. How do we resist and reject false teaching? I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing, the Holy Spirit that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you, his spirit teaches us, it is true and in there is no lie. So we abide in Christ. Antichrist are liars who deny the revelation of Jesus Christ. But children, children, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We are led into truth. And the enemy seems frightful and big. We really don't realize all that's really hunting us. But he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. You don't have to muster up and be bigger than badder than who you think you are. It's through weakness, it's apparent foolishness, that we will confound the world and turn it upside down as it's been done these past 19, 2,000 years. Friends, it is now the last hour. We're living in the last days. I know some of you are praying like, Lord, this, is, this really feels like this is the last, last days. Wouldn't that be marvelous? Man, wouldn't it be marvelous that, that I don't have to go to my wife's funeral, but I can actually, with my wife, see Jesus' return? I mean, I would, lo- I would love that. But none of us know when that day is. Only the Father knows. But this is the last hour, and we're now many minutes less in your life than you were when I first told you about this. Our only hope is to abide in God. You're not promised a certain number of days in your life. And young, young people, please, I know you feel like your life is all in front of you. And it may be. But we're not as strong as we think we are, and we're not guaranteed tomorrow. None of us. So at this time and in this hour, what do you believe about Jesus? Who do you say he is? This is the promise he has made to us, eternal life. Let's pray.